All right, good evening. I welcome you back to your seats. Grab your Bibles with me and turn to Judges chapter 12. We are making our way verse by verse through the book of Judges. We find ourselves tonight in chapter 12. We are going to only be able to handle seven verses because of the importance of the subject. While you're thumbing your way to Judges 12, I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we're, we're here to submit to your word. and May your God-breathed word uh, encourage us tonight, comfort our hearts, instruct us in the way we should go, lead us as a light unto our path, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The definition of friendly fire, of course, is the discharge of a military weapon that injures or kills a member of one's own armed forces or an ally. When we hear of such reports from the foreign battlefield, we are especially grieved. It's a dark and terrible irony that it wasn't out of the uh, enemy's hands, but at the hands of, of a fellow comrade that injury or death resulted. Now, the problem of friendly fire isn't exclusive to the military or to the kingdom of nations at war, but it's a problem in God's kingdom in the spiritual battle that we wage. God's people at war with one another, blowing each other up with grenades and wounding and devouring one another. We're going to see this very wicked phenomenon uh, very clearly tonight in chapter 12 in these seven verses. Um, for context, if you missed it last week, Israel has been at war now for many years, again, on and off with her pagan neighbors there. They are under siege right now from the wicked Ammonites, well, actually, for 18 long years, they've been oppressed, and they, uh, according to chapter 10 and verse 8, uh, they were currently being crushed and shattered. Doesn't sound fun. The suffering, though, has helped them to turn their hearts uh, toward God in repentance. They've gotten right with God, as you recall, and the Lord has raised up a deliverer, which is what the book of Judges is named after. They're called Judges, uh, who rescue Israel from the hand of their enemies. In the last chapter, we, we met him. His name was Jephthah, a mighty warrior. And under Jephthah's lead, uh, Israel took the offensive and uh, routed the ruthless Ammonites, and finally they were subdued. So Israel's free. After 18 long years of cruel oppression, uh, they were liberated, the enemy was vanquished, and it's time to celebrate, right? Shouts of victory, right? Celebrations, right? Wrong. Any of that joy is going to be short-lived because there's trouble brewing. Dark clouds are gathering on the horizon, and ironically and tragically, it's not coming from behind enemy lines, but from within the ranks of the people of God. So just seven verses tonight. Verse 1, the men of Ephraim, 
bad guys, called out their forces of war, crossed over to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Let's pause there. <laughs> Roman numeral number one, crazy Christians. When God's people go berserk. Now, technically, the Old Testament Jew is a believer, is not a Christian. Ultimately, Christ comes from them and will purchase them. They will ultimately belong to him. But they are no less God's chosen people in that covenant period. Now, when God's people go crazy, brother Israelites, fellow Jews, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, theirs is the adoption of sons, the promises. There's the temple worship the word of God entrusted to them, brothers in the Lord calling Yahweh, the living God of heaven and earth, their father. The proud and powerful tribe, we call it a state, of Ephraim, covenant partakers uh, with fellow Israelites, they've left their region of Ephraim. They've crossed over the Jordan into the land where the Gideonites live, where Jephthah is, and they're coming not in peace, but they're coming to make war. They're armed for battle. They come across the Jordan with crazed eyes, foaming at the mouth, and drawn swords and murderous threats. Now, considering the phenomenal good news that the Amorites are dead, and they were singing, you know, ding dong, the wicked king is dead. I mean, they were very happy. I mean, after 18 years, God did this thing through Jephthah. And I mean, everybody's dancing around, and then suddenly uh, the, the rumor gets started. <laughs> There's these chariots coming there. They didn't have chariots yet, but they were coming and advancing over the Jordan to make war and so it just is crazy why in the world would brothers in the lord the ephraimites or uh, why would they want to do a thing like this to a hero who has saved them well clearly some of them have gone mad now when we live for self we are playing with spiritual insanity because god has designed this world that he be in the center that we serve him, that we live by his laws. And when we do the reverse of that, when we are at the center and we are living by our own laws, <laughs> disregarding the purposes of the creator and his design for life, we have entered the realm of crazy and insanity because life wasn't designed for me to be on the throne of my life. And so they are crazy. They are nuts. They have lost their mind because they're all about me, myself, and I, as we're going to see here. Uh, I, they've contracted what I will call spiritual distemper. All right? It's a highly contagious disease. Uh, my brother-in-law, who's a pastor in Maine, calls it 
carnivorous sheep syndrome. Now, normally, sheep are, don't eat meat. So, but when they get crazy, when they get a virus of envy and jealousy and resentment and bitterness, when they pick up these bugs, they get rabid. They get distemper. They're not thinking straight. They get crazy. And as soon as you start thinking about me and my selfish ambition, you're going to be made crazy, Christian or not. So their, their actions are irrational, as we're going to see here. Um, and irrationality is a sign that something's not quite right mentally. So Job chapter 5, verse 2 says, Resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. And we're going to see the horrific truth of the, the, that verse fulfilled. Here's what the NIV commentary says here. Instead of congratulating Jephthah, for his accomplishment and thanking him for delivering them from the Ammonite threat. In their jealousy and wounded sense of self-importance, the Ephraimites are determined to destroy the deliverer. Now, their complaint is couched in terms that make them look good and Jephthah look bad. So, what do they say? Why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you. Doesn't that sound so reasonable? Man, we, we want to help. Why did you exclude us? I mean, we could have been there for you. But that's not exactly what they mean, because it wouldn't be very fun to say what they really meant. And what they really meant was, what about us? What about our recognition? We get no credit here, and we're madder than hops about this. Or did you exclude us on purpose? Uh, uh, everybody's talking about you, 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 and now you're the new ruler, and guess what? That makes us subservient to you. We were the uh, number one tribe. Now we're going to be subservient to you guys. We're not happy about that, you know? You excluded us because you want to hog all the honor and praise for yourself. Now, you're the top dog, and we're not very happy about that. Well, yeah, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, hey, we wanted to help. Uh, why didn't you call us to go with you? Well, narcissistic personality disorder is a condition in which people have an inflated sense of self-importance and an extreme preoccupation with themselves. Another quote here, the accomplishments of others are seen as a personal threat to these kinds of people. So self-absorbed, neurotic people begrudge others of blessings because they can't stand not being the center of attention. This is what's fueling the Ephraimites' complaint. Now, the worst of lo and lowest of all human vices, resentment, envy, pride, and selfish ambition. It puts the D in devil and the M in murder. James chapter 3, verse 16, he says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder, chaos, and every evil practice. Now think about that. That includes murder. Uh, Proverbs 18:21: death and life are in the power of the tongue. So violence is going to result here, but it's not always physical violence. 
Sometimes it's just slander or ruining somebody's reputation. Now, it's not the Ephraimites' first time at the MeFest rodeo. Um, <laughs> Judges chapter 8, you'll remember this. Uh, God uses Gideon to do just about the same thing. And uh, 300 guys under Gideon's uh, uh, lead put to flight 135,000 Midianites. And who comes ticked off at Gideon? Well, I'll read to you chapter 8 and verse 1. Now the Ephraimites came and asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. Sound familiar? These guys haven't learned a lesson. Now, Warren Wiersbe, when people are wrong and refuse to accept logical reasoning and confess their faults, they often turn to violence, physical or verbal, in order to protect their pride and reputation. And so they say, listen, uh, we're not happy. We're going to burn your house down with you in it. And so now you may recall that Gideon handled these bad boys a little bit differently than Jephthah will. Now, Gideon is the soft answer that turns away wrath guy. He uh, diffused the situation. He flattered them. Do you remember what he said? He said, oh, who am I compared to you guys? You guys are the head. I'm the tail. And look what you did. You even captured two. We're going to incorporate you a little bit on the mop-up uh, procedures here. And so he uh, used a little bit of that soft answer kind of thing. Now, the misguided Ephraimites are going to find that not all of God's leaders have the same personality or have the same leadership style. Jephthah is type A. Gideon was type B, laid back. Oh, bro, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that happened. You know, look at you. You guys are everything. We are nothing. Flattering and all of that. But Jephthah's not that way. Jephthah's like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is like, let fish or cut bait. You know, kid, you didn't make it the first missions trip. You're not coming on the second. I'm sorry. End of discussion. Next. And Barnabas, another leader. He's called Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. That was his nickname. They called him Barney. Why? Because he's like, oh, give the kid another chance. Oh, where's the grace? Man, I'm type B. Come on, can't we all get along? <laughs> Jephthah is type A. Don't mess around with him. He's going to tell you the facts, and then he's going to get to business. But they weren't ready for that. Now, here's how he responds. First, he loves, this is his personality, Jephthah. He loves to set the record straight first. And so to their irrational, unjust complaint, Jephthah's going to lay out the facts. Verses 2 and 3. Now you remember, remember when king of Ammon said, hey, this is our land. You stole it from us. And Jephthah went on a whole history lesson. He goes, I just need to. This is how I am. I can't stand misinformation. I'm going to just have to school you in how reality really is. And so he's going to do the exact same thing to these guys. Okay, verses 2 and 3. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with these Ammonites. And although I did call, 
You didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Roman numeral number two, answer a fool according to his folly. All right, Jephthah really likes the truth, and he just can't stand to gloss over things and nod his head and say whatever you say. He just can't stand that. He's not that kind of leader. And so just as he did with the irrational accusations from the king of Ammon, he's going to do the same. Now, the king of Ammon, remember, he says, you know, hey, all we want is our land back. When you give us our land that you took from me, then everything will be peaceful. And what did he say? He said, number one, actually, it belonged to the Amorites, not you guys. Number two, Yahweh gave it to us, so pick it up with him. And we've had it for 300 years. Where have you been for 300 years? Number four, we didn't even take your real land, the land of Moab that you should be talking about. We didn't even go into it. We had to go around it. So just now that the record's straight, go home. That's what he says. Now, look what he does here. He goes, okay, Informites, listen, I need to set this straight. You'd like to think of yourself as a victim, that you have a legitimate complaint here. I've done something terrible, and you're all here to right the wrong, the crusade for truth and justice. Number one, we were taking the brunt of this 18-year-long oppression. The Gileadites lived on the eastern side of Jordan, remember the tribe of Man- the half tribe of Manasseh in Gad parked there. They didn't want to go into the promised land. So God said, look, I'll make a deal. If you guys go in and help them settle the land, you guys can come back and stay parked there. But as you park there and God gave that land to them, as you park there, just know you're going to be the brunt. If you would have crossed the Jordan like I asked you to in the first place, you wouldn't be bearing the brunt of everything. So number one, he says, by the way, uh, Ephraimites, we have been suffering worse than you guys for 18 years. Number two, we did call you. Oh, oh, you forgot about that. But you guys don't, the guys on the West, Israel proper, separated by the Jordan River, they don't like their relatives on the other side. They considered them second-class citizens. They're the guys that didn't want to come over and cross into the promised land in the first place. So he said, oh, we called, but nobody thought, you know what? Let them bear the consequences of their bad choices with their forefathers 300 years ago when they all decided to settle there. Let them live there. And nobody came to our rescue, and we're bearing it, bearing it, bearing it. We call out. You guys don't come when we realize you've abandoned us. Then we, I, take my life in my hands. I put my life out there. And who comes to my rescue? God uses me and brings a deliverance with these people. And now you're here to fight with me? So that's all he wants to do. He feels better now. He says, I can identify with this guy. He just likes to lay out the truth. This is reality. I don't like laboring under false ideas either. I mean, sometimes you just have to know, is this the time I answer a fool according to his folly or I don't answer a fool according to his folly? Because Proverbs chapter 26, 4 and 5 are back-to-back contradictory advices. It says in verse 4 of Proverbs 26, answer a fool according to his folly. 
or he will be wise in his own eyes. The next verse is, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Now, what is he saying? He's saying sometimes you need to school the guy. And sometimes it's ridiculous. You're not getting anywhere. Stop the conversation because you're being more foolish than him. And all you're doing is giving him more ammo, talking to somebody who doesn't appreciate wisdom, doesn't want to change. He's already got his mind made up, man. Stop talking. Somebody really enjoyed that over there. <laughs> it's hard to stop talking, though. <laughs> Not that I would know, but... All right, so on we go. Let me talk some more. We did call. You didn't come and save us. When, you, when, when we on the east side realized that you on the west were ignoring us, I took my life in my hands. Okay, so here's a paraphrase. The heavy lifting has gotten done. You were nowhere to be found when we really needed you. I put myself out there in harm's way, and God did a good thing through me, and you're enjoying the fruit of that. Hello? You're delivered too, by the way, and Yahweh did it, and we're giving him all the glory, and you want to fight with me and burn me down in my house. <laughs> Proverbs 1, verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and correction. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> Proverbs 12.1, from the Bible. I didn't make that up. <laughs> All right, it says that. He who hates correction is a dumbbell. Stupid. <laughs> Proverbs 15.10, he who hates correction will die. So, reasoning, an attempt to reason with the hotheads, fail. Four through seven. Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim, the hotheads. Then Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, all right, are you an Ephraimite? And if they replied, no, then they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. You know, in the Hebrew, it can read in a way that says 40 and 2,000. So it could mean 2,040 men were slain there. Either way, we're talking a lot of lives have been lost, all right? I tend to think it might have been 2,000. 42,000 sounds like a high number, but the Hebrew is very ambiguous. It can go either way. Uh, Jephthah led Israel six years, and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. Number three, and finally, them's fighting words. Okay, that's an expression, of course, that means what you just said is going to lead to a fight, and in this case, a big one. So 
the bad boys, instead of humbling themselves and taking it in and considering maybe there's some uh, truth in what Jephthah just said to them, instead of reflecting and introspecting and maybe taking a time out, maybe talking, maybe having a quick word of prayer, something. Instead, they fire back with an insult. They said, you know what you guys are? You guys are second-class citizens. Now, what, what they said is they, they called them renegades. Renegades meaning from Manasseh and Ephraim. He's saying, you guys are illegitimate Jews. You're living on the other side with the pagans. You didn't cross over in the promised land. You're second class. You're illegitimate. It's a real nasty word to the men. And so the men aren't very happy about this. Jephthah uh, rallies the soldiers and says, um, all right, let's see if you can swing that sword as well as you can sling that slander. I hope you're as good with your hands as you are with your tongue. And apparently they were not. They were just uh, because they were so easily, verse 4 says, the Gideonites struck them down. No time flat. Troublemakers are, are done. So as, now listen, this is kind of entertaining, if not uh, tragically so. Um, they've already beat them. So they put them to flight, the big talkers. The Ephraimites are now going to go home, back over the Jordan to true, proper Israel. All right? The survivors. But what... what uh, Jephthah's men do is they go to the crossing borders on the fords of the Jordan. You, can't, you couldn't get across the Jordan and go back home without going to one of their border crossings. And so they would say, hey, you look Jewish and everything. Well, where are you from? Are you an Ephraimite? And they would say, no, of course not. I'm not one of those guys. They'd say, say Shibboleth. <laughs> and they go, Shibboleth. <laughs> now, the dialects, that would be like saying that the, they all spoke Hebrew, but they had different accents. You remember when Peter's warming himself at the fire, and he says, you know what, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. I, on the third time, the junior high servant girl says, excuse me, your little Galilean twang gives you away. Your accent gives you away. They, we, you can tell where a person is from by the way they talk. And so these guys had an SH problem. They couldn't say it. They dropped out of their usage. And so instead of saying shh, they would say sih, just like a lot of languages do, where they can't make a sound that we make. And so, uh, and we do the same for them as well. You know, Japanese have a terrible time with TH. I was there for four years. I couldn't teach them how to say the. No, the. They would say za. Because they have a za, but they don't have consonant blends. None. There's not one in the language. They don't have TH or BL or DL or DW, nothing. No consonants together. So they just say, we can't say the, so we're going to say za, because it's pretty close. Is that OK? And it's OK. Neither do they have a ra. So they can't say ross. But they got an LD sound. They can say do, dos. Right? And so this is the test here. They're like, they, you can't fake this. You know, if you're from Boston, they'd say, okay, you're not from Boston? All right. Say, park the car. <laughs> and they go, 
Pack the cat. <laughs> You're dead right there. Oh, you from Brooklyn? Oh, no, I'm not from Brooklyn. Say coffee. Coffee? <laughs> Are you from Texas, you southern boy? No? Say hello, everyone. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> Gone. You know, there are sounds that foreigners make. When I'm trying to learn Tagalog, when I was in the Philippines, there's a nasty sound. It's a guttural. It's, it's called nya, nya. Now, I would say it, and every single time I said it, just like they said it, they would say, oh, no, no. Uh, I'd go, nga, and they would say, no, in the back of your throat. I said, that is so back there, I'm gagging from how far back that's coming from. I, if someone held a sword to my throat and said, say, nga, I'd be like, just kill me. <laughs> if someone held a sword to my throat and said, say, California, I'd probably just say, I'd probably fall over dead anyway. I'd probably not be able to say it because you know your life dependent on whether or not you can pronounce an SH. Your life depends on this. Clear your throat and go for it. You better be good at accents. Oh my word. And so there you have it, you know. Uh, did the lead troublemakers, because you know it wasn't all of those 40,000, all, all of those 3,000. They were following a few ringleaders. Did the few ringleaders who were obsessed with their own honor and glory and self-aggrandizement, did they realize what it would cost everybody else to live for self? I don't think so. I don't think self-centered people think like that. 42,000, perhaps, lost their lives as a testimony to the fruit of selfish ambition. But I would say more than 42,000 people have lost their lives this week because of selfish people. How many marriages and families have been decimated because somebody's found themselves? Oh, I was. I woke up one day and I realized I wasn't really happy. I wasn't getting my needs met. And you know what? I'm not sure I really love you anymore because I found myself. And Jesus said, when you find yourself like that, you've lost yourself. That's losing yourself for him that you find yourself. How many kids don't have a father? because the Father just is all about me and what I need and my selfish gratifications? How many church splits? How many pastors and leaders have been decimated and destroyed by tongue lashings and slander because somebody got their feelings hurt or they're not running the church the way they think they should be running the church? There's always room for somebody to make comments, and there's, there's ways to go about bringing changes, needful, legitimate changes to a church body. But then there are the Ephraimites who just come in, and after the heavy lifting is done, then they have to complain because they didn't get their name put on something. How many churches don't even, aren't even open today 
because somebody just couldn't get over themselves. Petty, petty things destroy people's lives. It's a couple I read about. The husband fed a soup bone that the wife was freezing for Sunday supper to the dog. And she came unglued. How could you be so careless? He said, honey, I, I, I told you about the soup bone. I forgot. I know I heard you say it, but I forgot. They stopped talking to each other for about two weeks. No intimacy. The secretary caught on, seduced the husband. They divorced over a pork chop bone. Because somebody wouldn't forgive. And somebody just took a, a little molehill and it happens both ways, not just husbands and wives. An entire church split over a potluck where a, an important person in the congregation was served a thinner slice of ham by one of the little girl servers. And he said, are you putting me on a diet? And she made a joke about it. Like, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Like, if your wife won't, I will. <laughs> she said something like that. The church split, split. Newspaper headlines. Church splits over a slice of ham. I don't want to be standing in heaven looking at the Lord and saying, you know, hearing the Lord say, can we talk about the slice of ham situation? <laughs> Where my name got drugged through the mud, people stopped going to church from church splits. They're like, ah, forget about it. I'll have church on the beach, crying out loud. The, this is the fruit of living for self, not letting love cover multitudes of sins, being stubborn and hard-hearted, and must have your way in defending yourself. And when you find out that you are making a big deal because you didn't get what you think you had coming, stop and check yourself. Stop and check yourself. Lately, I've been making reflections for me I read that I'm doing all of this, and then I just think, well, Ross, what did you get out of it? And so I've been sharing them with you. So I got four quick ones. Number one, reflection from these seven verses. For me, unfortunately, it's just not attacks from the outside we have to be concerned about. Trouble can arise from within, and a professed believer can do just as much damage and cause just as much pain as a militant atheist. Don't be naive, but don't be cynical either. Just be wise. Number two, when I'm overly concerned about my own honor and recognition, when things don't go my way and I overreact, when I find myself resenting someone else's achievement and blessing, in short, when I'm acting like a big fat baby, 
I need the cross to die daily. Self-centered living will poison my Christian life, short-circuit God's plans for me, and bring heartache to everyone around me, guaranteed. Three, sometimes when challenged by a misguided soul, it's good to set the facts straight and draw a line in the sand and stand up to the troublemaker. Other times it's wise to diffuse the situation with gentle diplomacy and tact. May the Lord give me wisdom to discern what's right in every situation. And lastly, number four, in the end, it will be God's assessment of me that counts the most, not the Ephraimites of this world. I must live to please him regardless of the cost. And I can do that by loving God with all my mind, heart, soul, and strength, and loving others with the same intensity in which I love myself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and just slap us around with it. We really need it. Just pound this truth into all of us and, and, and take out of us the seed of self-centered living so that it doesn't grow into a, a tree and produce fruit. Rather, Father, let the Holy Spirit and his fruit be produced in us. Just the opposite of selfish ambition, but other-centeredness, brotherly kindness, brotherly love, patience, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, graciousness. Help us to be more like you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.